All right, good evening, everyone. Let us, Emir Hashem, begin. So I know we started Kapitel um, Nun Zayin, Baruch Hashem, last week's shir. So tonight, if it's okay with your permission, we'd like to focus a little bit more on the parasha. So Emir Hashem, kind of a little bit of a focus back and forth each week. But this week, I think there was an episode in the parasha that really caught my attention. And I think requires a little bit greater explanation, a little bit greater depth. So tonight, we will have a reference to Tehillim. We have to be Yotzei Tehillim, after all, Zetehillim Shir. But Amir Tzahashem, we're going to focus primarily on Parshas Vayetze. And I want to draw your attention to what I think, you know what's interesting about, about Bereshus in general, is that there are stories that we all know, but then there are some of these smaller stories that occur within the text, that when you read them, they're so profoundly strange and I think when we're younger, we kind of just go through them. We don't really pay that much attention to them. And we just move on to the more dominant or more well-known stories. So if you take a look at number one. So number one is such a story. So the Torah says as follows. So Ruven goes, again, in the days of the wheat harvest. He finds Dudoim. Now Dudoim are, how is the translation over here? The, oh, the translation is Dudaim. That's very helpful. Good. Right? So he found Dudaim. So the truth is, again, Dudaim, sometimes they're translated as mandrakes, flowers. He found flowers. He found flowers in the field. He brought them to Leah, his mother. And Rachel says to Leah, Can I have some of the flowers? Rachel's, Leah's response. So Leah, Leah responds very harshly. Or at least it sounds like she's responding very harshly. It's not enough that you've taken my husband. Now you want to take the flowers. Also you want to take the flowers of my child. says, okay. Therefore, again, you give me the flowers and Yaakov will spend the night with you. A strange story. An incredibly strange story, especially given the fact that, remember again, it's funny, I just, uh, there was a group of, of girls from Beis Yaakov, one of the, uh, one of the Beis Yaakovs in Passaic, who was just here. So they, they do a Washington trip every year. So they come here, I get to speak to them on their, in between their, their, their legs of the journey. And uh, so just, I was talking to them about a different episode, about a different episode in Bereshis. And we were speaking about the idea that, one which we've spoken about a number of different times, which is the Torah is not a storybook. Torah is not a storybook. And the stories that are included are only included because of their moral, ethical, or legal implications. So if you see a story in the Torah, the first question you have to ask yourself is, why is this here? And you see a story like this, which, to be honest, let's, let's be honest, is this a normal story? No. Does this cast Rachel and Leah like in a favorable light? Not at all. In fact, again, it seems like they're squabbling. It seems like there's fighting. They're bartering flowers for a husband. It, it, it's an entirely strange story, which then le- makes us, or leads us to the question of what exactly is going on over here? What's the meaning of the story? What's the lesson? And ultimately, why is it included? So I want to show you a couple of different approaches here. So, it, it, so first of all, Rav Hirsch. And Rav Hirsch has, I would say, probably like the most dramatic approach and the most unconventional approach, which Rav Hirsch often does in his parish on Chomish. And Rav Hirsch writes as follows. Number two, listen to this. He says, this business of the mandrakes has again and again been taken by the commentators in a serious vein. So Rav Hirsch says, we all read this story. And what do we see? Right, again, you read this story. What's the first thing that comes to mind? What, 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 do, you, what do you see in this story? It's not a true question. I promise. Tension. Tension. Right? What you see over here, right? Sisters can sometimes be at each... I'm avoiding eye contact with my daughter, right? And in a house of four girls, Baruch Hashem, my boys are out of the house. So sisters can sometimes really get at it with each other. Right? So that's what this... Not, not my girls, Baruch Hashem. Right? But, but again, so that's... When you look at this story, that's what it looks like. Rachel and Leah, literally, again, Leah gets flowers. Rachel says, can I have some of the flowers? Leah says, you took my husband. Now you want to take my flowers? Rachel says, fine, fine. You know what? Yaakov will be with you. Yaakov, I'll take some flowers. Yaakov will be so Rav Hirsch says, everyone takes this story seriously. But he says something amazing. He says, but it is quite unthinkable that Leah, 
whose, whose whole life was devoted to gain the complete love of her husband, could easily have uttered the words, you have got my man, and now you want my bunch of flowers also, in any serious sense. As if the possession of a few flowers could come into the very slightest consideration in connection with, or in comparison with, the possession of a beloved husband. Rather, look what Refresh writes, the whole matter appears as an instance to show a state of the two sisters living together in the most confidential intimacy. While Jacob is out in the field, the two wives sit together. His evenings he spends alternatively with each one of them. Reuven, who is still a little boy, brings some wild flowers home to his mother. Give me some of them, says Rachel. What sauce to ask for my precious flowers, says Leah jokingly. But of course, she gives her some. Now, says Rachel, because you have been so kind, he shall come to you this evening. So Rav Hirsch, and this is incredible, Rav Hirsch says, you know what the entire point of this story is? You read the story in the Chumash of Rachel and Leah, and right, the perception we walk away with is, it's a household filled with tension. Right, Leah feels like the secondary wife, Rachel is the primary wife, but of course the secondary wife is one who's having all the children. The primary wife is one who's struggling with infertility. So you have like this feeling of like a household that's filled with tension, so thick you could cut it with a knife. Where Hirsch says, what's the point of this story? Point of the story was, everything was fine. Everything was fine. They're joking around. They're jo- the Torah is giving you a window into the private lives of Rachel and Leah. The sisters joking around with each other. It's not a house filled with tension. It's not a house filled with difficulty. People aren't at each other's throats. They love each other. Again, is it complicated? Every situation of multiple wives is complicated. That's why not one story in the Chumash with multiple wives ends well. They all end terribly. Because even though, again, biblically is permitted, it's clear that it's just a terrible idea. We're going to discuss this a little bit more. But Rav Hirsch says the entire point of the story is to highlight the idea the sisters get, excuse me, the sisters get along. Sisters get along. So I wanted to start with this Rav Hirsch because this Rav Hirsch stands in contradistinction to every single other Mefarish. No one, no one understands the story like Refersh does, but it's nice to start with something positive, right? So therefore, again, I always love this Refersh. Listen to the way he writes, so, what sauce to ask me for my flowers, right? Obviously, Refersh wrote in German. That's the English translation. I don't know what the, the, the Germanic term for what sauce is, but again, so Refersh says the whole thing, it's almost, you know what it is? It's almost like, it's almost like a little bit of a break in the tension, because it is a tension-filled story. It is. The entire story of the life of the Avos and the Mo's is a tension-filled story. Rav Hirsch says, this is here to break the tension. Okay, that's Rav Hirsch. Everyone else, like I said, understands it differently. Take a look at number three. So, in order to really appreciate what's actually happening over here, we need to take a step back. Remember, again, Yaakov Avinu is married to two sisters, Rachel and Leah. And the Torah says in number three, Vayavo Gama Rachel, also married Rachel. So remember again, he was tricked by Lavan. He's tricked by Lavan. He ends up marrying Rif, uh, Leah first, excuse me. He works for another seven years, ends up marrying Rachel. He loved, now the way we translate this is, he loved Rachel more than Leah. And the way often we understand the dynamic in Yaakov Avinu's home, is that there's a favorite wife, there's a favorite wife, and there's a not favorite wife. There's a loved wife, and there's an unloved wife. He loves Rachel, he doesn't have Leah. Now, by the way, could you blame Yaakov Avinu if he loved Rachel and didn't love Leah? Can you blame him? It's okay, don't be afraid to answer. No, you're not going to get him. Don't worry, right? No, you can't blame him. Of course you can't. Why can't you blame him? Why can't you blame him? He didn't want to marry Leah. In other words, remember, let's be clear about this. Yaakov didn't want to marry Leah. He didn't want to marry her. Sure, he thought he was a, she was a very nice girl and she would be a wonderful sister-in-law, but he never had any intention. It's not the shot that like, he met two sisters, they're both wonderful. People are suggesting he should have with both of them. He's not Georgia. That was never the narrative. 
The narrative was, he sees Rachel, there's something. With Yaakov and Rachel, there's something. From the moment they see each other, there's a connection that never happened with Leah. So one would not fault Yaakov Avinu at all for loving Rachel, not loving Leah. The problem is Yaakov Avinu is also one of the Avos. And as one of the Avos, Yaakov Avinu also knows that nothing ever happens by accident. Nothing ever happens just, you know, derech mikra. Everything that happens is a form of hashkacha pratis. Everything that happens is another step, another stage in divine providence. Which means, Yaakov, if it turns out that you're married to Leah, then what does that tell you? What does that tell you? That HaKadosh Baruch Hu needs you to be married to Leah. And there is no question that Yaakov understood this. By the way, what's the proof that Yaakov understood this? What's the proof? He didn't divorce her. In other words, remember again, I just want to point out, remember, Noahide divorce, which again, before we received the Torah, we had a concept of a get, Noahide divorce was affected in a very simple way. Couple stops living together. You're no longer married. That's it. Marriage was a couple lives together. Divorces, they don't live together. Yaakovinu could have said, Leah, I am so sorry. I am so sorry, but I did not sign up for this. I wish you a, a wonderful life. Happy to help. You could put me down as a, as a, as a recommendation, right? As a reference, right? But, but, but Lamaisa, like, like, I'm not, this, this doesn't make any sense. But he doesn't do that. Because he understands that at the end of the day, obviously, this entire series of events wasn't orchestrated by Lavan. It was orchestrated by the Ribbon Shalom. And if this is how HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants it, then by definition, there's got to be something here. So if that's the case, then what does the Pasuk mean when it says that Vayehav Gam Es Rachel Mileya? That Yaakov also loved Rachel more than Leah. So if you look at number four of Schwab, Zichetzadik Levracha has a beautiful insight. I apologize for the smallness of the print. Roshua writes as follows, number four. So first of all, Roshua says, everyone misunderstands the Pasuk. They translate it wrongly. Just let's, let's be a little, little literal here for just a moment. Vayehav gam es Rachel milea. How would you literally translate it? Vayehav, he loved, gam es Rachel, also Rachel, milea. From the or more than Leah. In other words, what the Pasuk is saying is Yaakov loved Rachel more than Leah. But what does that tell you about his feelings towards Leah? He loved her as well. In other words, if, if, if I say, you know, I, I love A more than I love B, what that means is I love both A and B. I just love A more than I love B. So first of all, Shav's just, just from the beginning, Torah's and Chasashalom saying that Yaakov doesn't love Leah. The Torah is saying he loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. And that's totally understandable. Rachel was the woman he wanted to marry. Leah was the woman he was tricked into marrying. But Rashab here says something amazing. Here's the problem. And I didn't, I, didn't put it, I didn't put it on the sheet. The problem is like this. Shortly after their marriage, the Pasuk says, Vayar Hashem kisnua Leah. Hashem saw that Leah was hated. Leah was despised. Vayiftach es rachma. And Hashem gave her a child. Hashem gave her a child. So it says Rav Schwab, how do, you, how do you reconcile this? Furthermore, again, if you continue on in number four, four lines in. Furthermore, when Leah is given pregnancy, she says, Hashem heard that I was despised. So how do you reconcile these two things? So Torah is telling us, Yaakov loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. But the understanding, of course, is that he still loves Leah. Leah is saying, I'm hated. So which one is it? Are you loved or are you hated? And here Rav Schwab says something absolutely amazing. He says, Yaakov didn't hate Leah. It's an Isser. It's prohibited to hate another Jew. So of course Yaakov didn't hate Leah. Skip down a little bit. All those gather. So this is absolutely amazing. Says Rav Shwab, Torah is teaching us marriage 101. What's marriage 101? A wife has to know that her husband values her more than anyone and anything in this world. A wife has to know that she is the center of her husband's universe. A wife has to know that she is an absolute priority. 
And if she does not feel like a priority, a wife not feeling like a priority is ultimately leads to a wife feeling unloved. Unlo- but, you're, but you're loved. Of course your husband loves you, but it's, I'm not his priority. I'm not the center of his universe. I'm not center stage in his life. And when a woman feels that when a wife feels that she is secondary to something in her husband's life, the result of that is a feeling of being despised. It's such an incredible insight by Rav Schwab that the Torah says two different things. How did Yaakov feel towards Leah? How did he feel towards her? He loved her. He loved her. Did he love her the most? No. And what, by the way, one cannot fault him for that. And how did Leah feel about how Yaakov felt? Leah knows that he loves Rachel more. Leah knows that Yaakov did not want to marry her. Leah knows that she's only his wife because her father tricked him into it. She knows that. And because she knows all of that, her resulting feeling is one of being despised by her husband. Now, this is incredibly important because this feeling of feel, this feeling of, and it starts out as feeling secondary, right? But once a wife feels that she is of secondary importance, what that ultimately evolves and devolves into is a feeling of being unloved, a feeling of being unwanted, and a feeling of being despised. And now you begin to understand Leah Imenu in a dramatic fashion because Leah carries this pain through the birth of her initial children as well. Take a look at number five. Right, so Leah is given a child, the first child, and she says, She calls him Reuven. Why? Hashem has seen my affliction. What affliction? What affliction has Leah had? What affliction? Right? The affliction of feeling unloved. Feeling unloved. I, I want to be clear. You know, you know the interesting thing about feelings? Interesting thing about feelings, right? Is they may not be real, but they're real to you. They're real to you, which is often the difficult thing in relationships when someone in a relationship feels a certain way, the other party might feel, the other party might feel, you feel that way, but it's objectively not true, right? So the worst thing you could do to a person who feels a certain way is to tell them their feelings are not true, right? That's why sometimes what feelings need more than anything at first is validation. Validation. After validation, I understand that's how you feel. Okay, but, but, just, but then I have to realize just because I feel a certain way doesn't mean it's correct. So there has to be a process to work through that as well. So Leah says, so Leah, Hashem, you saw my affliction. What affliction? Everything, everything, everything is, looks good, Right? There's stability, there's safety, there's security. The affliction is the internal emotional turmoil that Leah carries with her every single day, knowing that she's not the chosen wife, knowing that she's not the center of her husband's universe, knowing that she is not the most important person in her husband's orbit. Maybe now that I've given him a son, maybe now my husband will love me. So you see from the way she names Ruvain that she obviously feels unloved, she feels again that she's in turmoil. Maybe now my husband will love me. Okay. Vatar old Vatelebein, our second son. Vatomer. Kishama Hashem Kisnua Anochi. Hashem has heard that I'm hated. Who said you're hated? Who said you? Once again, Leah Imenu's feelings about herself in this predicament. He gave me another son. Vatikra Ashimo Shimon. Third son. Vatar old Vatelebein. Page two. Vatomer, She said, now, son number three, now, my husband is going to be connected to me. So what do you see? Ruvain, Shimon, Levi. In differing ways and differing degrees, all the names contain the two elements. Number one, number one, I'm in pain. I'm suffering. And number two, maybe this child will help change my marital dynamic. That's the life of Leia Menu. And the only way to understand what she's talking about is to understand Vayahav Yaakov Esrachal Gam Mileah. No, that wasn't the right quote. What was it? Vayahav Gam Esrachal Mileah. And now to understand what Rav Shrab says, he loves them both, but he loves Rachel more. Rachel knows it. Leah knows it. And Leah walks around knowing, knowing that your husband loves you second most 
is the equivalent of not being loved at all. And more than that is the equivalent of you might as well, I might, you might as well despise me. It's the same exact thing. And that feeling that Leah Imani carries with her manifests itself in the naming of her first three sons. But then something very interesting happens, which is if you take a look at number six, what happens? Leah becomes pregnant a fourth time and gives birth to a son. And what does she say? This time, I will thank Hashem. Therefore, she called his name Yehuda, thanksgiving, gratitude. And for now, she stopped giving birth. What's dramatic about this child? What's dramatic? What's dramatic? No mention of pain, right? No mention of Yaakov, right? No mention of I'm despised. No mention of me, my husband will love me. Nothing. Just simply, I'm going to give gratitude to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Once again, asks Rav Schwab in number seven, something amazing. So what happened? When Leah named her first three sons, the names were, you know, it's interesting. When we name, often the way we name is, well, often it's like after someone. So it's interesting. Obviously, you know, when you're learning Bereshis, there's like, the name pool is very limited, right? So, so there's not too many people to name after. I mean, the truth is there are. There's plenty of people like in the, in the, in the generational listings in Bereshis. You have a lot of interesting names. So what's interesting is if you look at the names that the Avos and the Maos gave their children, they were very often aspirational names. In other words, the name contains ultimately, again, a bracha for the child. Leah was unique. Leah's aspirational names had nothing to do with her kids. Leah's aspirational names were aspirational for who? For herself. For herself. Right? Ruvain, Hashem heard my, my affliction, my husband's going to love me. Right? Shimon, Hashem heard that I'm hated, my husband's going to love me. Levi, I've given him a son, now he's going to be connected to me. So if Hirsch said each of the first three sons, their names were aspirational, petitional requests to be loved by her husband. And says Rosh Schwab something amazing. Look at this. I mean, number, source number seven, one, two, three, four lines in. Rosh Schwab says a heartbreaking line. Leah's tefillah was not answered. Was not, or it was answered, but it was no. In other words, she asked Hashem, this son, right? You've heard that I'm, you heard that I'm despised. My husband will love me. My husband will love me. My husband will love me. The relationship doesn't change. The relationship doesn't change. Again, does Yaakov still love Leah? Does Yaakov still love Leah? Yes, that's always the backdrop to this, right? What Yaakov feels towards Leah and what Leah gets from Yaakov are two very different things. Yaakov gives Leah love. Leah doesn't feel she receives any love from Yaakov. Because again, Rishwas, it makes sense. Because if I'm not number one, if I'm not number one, then I'm nothing in your... Then what is that? What, what, what relationship is that? What marriage is that? So Rishwas says, first three kids, she davins, 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 let my marital dynamic change. And guess what says Rav Schwab? It doesn't. It doesn't. Lachim, get ready for this. Sileimim, it does something absolutely amazing. Lachim, achshav beledas Yehuda, lo ispala laod. So Yehuda comes son number four. She does not daven anymore to Hashem for a change in her marital reality. She doesn't have, what does she say? She just says, Ela amra hapam odes Hashem. I thank you Hashem. I thank you, Hashem, for what? For what? Rav Schwab says, Bechol Matzav Shehu. I thank you, Hashem, for my situation, whatever it is. Whatever it is. I thank you, Hashem. That's it. So, whether Hashem, whether you change my marital dynamic, don't change my marital dynamic, thank you for the life that you've given me. Or in other words, says Rav Schwab, with the birth of Yehuda, Leah does something ridiculously courageous, which is she accepts her reality. She accepts the fact that Rachel is going to be wife number one. That's it. That's it. That's the way that it is. And it's not going to change. So I have a choice. I have a choice. I can go ahead and spend the rest of my life being miserable. 
I could go ahead and use my children as an opportunity to once again keep davening for this change, davening for this change. Or I could say, you know what? At the end of the day, you see, what Leia Amino realizes is when you're hyper-focused on what's broken, you can't see all the things that are beautiful. So Leia Amino, do you understand when you name a child, right? The, the naming of a child is like the most life-affirming wellspring of hope, of optimism, of a future. And how does Leah, how does Leah Mina use the opportunity to name her child? What does she use it for? What does she use it for? As an opportunity to dive into Hashem for her pain. For her pain. And essentially she says like, what am I doing? What am I doing? Yaakov is Yaakov, Rachel is Rachel, and I'm Leah. That's it. These are the circumstances of our life. If I could accept what is, if I could accept what is, then I can learn to appreciate all the beautiful brachas that I have around me as well. Thank you, Hashem. Thank you, Hashem, for what? Thank you, Hashem, for the life you've given me. Ay, but Leah, what about the fact that you're number two? You feel this wise? It is what it is. It is what it is. Leah Imenu was one of the first people to teach us the concept that in life, when something is broken, you see, one of the most difficult things in life is when something is broken, obviously, well, when something is broken, right? You have something that's broken in life. What do you do? What do you do? Try to fix it. Good. That's actually an excellent answer because more often than not, people answer that question. Something's broken, you say to him, no, no. Or yes, you could say to him, but also try to fix it. Also try to fix it, right? In other words, like the answer to everything in life is not saying nishmas 57 times, right? Sometimes in life, you actually just have to roll up your sleeves and do something, and do something. You can say nishmas while you're doing something. You can say to them while you're doing something. Something's broken, you try to fix it. You try to fix it. Sometimes in life, you realize you have reality that you can't fix. I can't fix it. And we all have situations like that. Interestingly enough, more often than not, they come up in the context of family, which is a separate discussion. It's not an accident that this is a family issue, right? I can't fix it. I can't fix it. Often I can't fix it because it's not just my issue. It involves someone else. I can fix me. I can't fix someone else. So you run into that life issue that is so profoundly broken, but there's nothing you can do about it. So in that moment, you have a choice to make. You could perseverate over it, right? You could moan and groan about it. You could complain. You could say, Zelofer. That's Latin, right? You could go ahead and you could say, you, you could do, you could do, you could do, you could theologize, you could philosophize. Why, 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 why? And then what happens when you finish, when you finish that process? What are you left with? Emotional exhaustion and nothing to show for it. Or you could say, you know what? This is what it is. Right now, right now, I can't do anything about it. So the only thing I can do is accept. I accept. Now, by the way, acceptance doesn't have to mean resignation, right? It doesn't have to mean I resign. But acceptance just sometimes means like this. I accept that for now, for now, I can't do anything about this. I'm going to keep my eyes open. Maybe at some point I will be able to do something. Yeah, but right now in this moment where I'm standing... I can't do anything about this situation. And if you find the courage to just say, this is it, and I accept it, it's dramatically liberating. Because now what I've done is, I've freed up a whole bunch of emotional and spiritual energy to see the great stuff that's happening in life. Because on any given day, there's something beautiful occurring in my life. In any given day, there is a bracha that is materializing. In any given day, something is going right. But if I'm just fixated on that which is broken and that which is wrong, I'm never going to see it. Says Rav Schwab something amazing. Leah Imenu with the birth of her fourth son, like flips this switch. Yaakov, I guess he loves me. I know he doesn't love me as much as Rachel. It is what it is. It is what it is. I accept it. I accept my role. I accept my place in this family. And I'm going to, because I accept it, I cannot thank you for everything else I have in life. Such a dramatic shift. 
So when you see this, when you see this, you say to yourself, okay, beautiful. We've turned a corner. We've turned a corner. There's shalom in the family. Yaakov loves both of his wives, true. Rachel more than Leah. The sisters, again, we have no reason to think they don't get along together. It sounds like they do get along together. They're getting along together. Leah, now who was in such emotional turmoil all of this time, is finally settled, finally okay. And it sounds like everything is going great. Until we come to the Dudaim story. Right? So now let's, let's go full circle. We come to, the, remember again, so what happened in source number one? Okay, one more time, review the story. Ruvain's coming back with flowers for his mother. Rachel says, could I have some of the flowers? Leah, it's not enough you took my husband. Now you want my flowers. Also, Rachel says, whoa, okay, okay, that's fine. You could have Yaakov, you could have Yaakov. So look what the Medrash says in number eight. What's going on over here? Here we go. Amr Leah Rachel. So says the Medrash. Remember again, like I said, Rav Hirsch was a solitary approach that the sisters were joking around with each other. Every single other commentary says, oh no, there's no joking around with each other. This is a, this is a gloves off. Like this is, this is two sisters going at it. So the Medrash says, Amra le'el Rachel. Le'el says to Rachel, Lo dayecha shelakachta esishi shenimshach libo acharecha. So Leah says to Rachel, you have such chutzpah. You have such chutzpah. How dare you ask me for my flowers after you stole my husband's heart? Rachel says back to Leah, listen to this. Amar Rachel Leah, Leah, lo Leah yishechu, ele yishi. Rachel says, Leah, excuse me. He's not your husband. He's my husband. Remember, I gave you the signs. I gave you the signs. I didn't want you to be humiliated. He never wanted to marry you. He never intended to marry you. The only reason you're in this marriage is because of my chesed. So Leah's saying, you stole my husband. Rachel's saying, excuse me, excuse me. Let's not engage in any historical revisionism over here. You stole my husband. Look, say, Medrash goes on. Number nine. Number nine. So, Rachel, Rachel, so Leah says to Rachel, if you kind of read them all together, so ultimately again, so Leah says to Rachel back almost, fine, fine, I understand you're supposed to marry you, but, look at number nine, I was married to him first. And you decided to come into this marriage and become a co-wife. Skip a little bit, skip a little bit, skip two. Number 11, get ready for this. Get ready for this. So again, if you think this all is like a back and forth, right? So Leah says to Rachel, it's not enough you took my flowers. Now you want to take my husband. Rachel says, excuse me, Leah. Excuse me, Leah. He's not your husband. He was my, I was supposed to marry him. I let you marry him. Leah says, fine, fine. But at the end of the day, I married him first. So listen to this. Rachel says, again, my chesed that puts you here. You never had a seat at this marital table. Look at the sferno in number 11. Do you know what Leah says to Rachel? She says to her, You know what Rachel says to Leah? Sorry, what Leah says to Rachel? Rachel, if you really cared about me, and you were cared about my dignity, then after you gave me the signs that I married, and I married Yaakov, you shouldn't have come on board afterwards. You shouldn't have come on board. Right? What, why, why, did you, why did you have to? In other words, again, if you're going to do a chesed and let me marry the man, why did you become a second wife? What did you think was going to happen in this home? Yaakov married two sisters, wanting what she was duped into, the other that he really wanted to, and everyone lived happily ever after. Right? Is, is that what you thought was going to happen? So according to the Sfarno, Leah literally says to Rachel, I don't understand. After I was married to him, why did you marry him? Why did you marry him? Can you imagine this exchange? Can you imagine this exchange? The emotion, the anger, the hurt. Right? Leah says, my husband. Rachel with his level of, understand, righteous indignation. Your husband? 
your husband? You're here because of my chesed. Leah says, Rachel, how dare you? Don't call yourself a balas chesed. If you were a balas chesed, you wouldn't have married him after I, Leah, your sister, was already married to him. That would have been a chesed. Right now, it's not a chesed. And they go at it. And they go absolutely at it. So what's incredible? See, so something fascinating happens over here, which is, you see, back by the naming of Yehuda, back by the naming of Yehuda, what ultimately occurred? See, we thought Leah underwent this cathartic change. But what really happened? What really happened? As we often do with our problems, Leah suppressed it. Suppression is a powerful tool and actually very helpful in because you can't wear everything on your sleeve. But what happens over here is when you suppress things, there's a tr- often there's a trigger event and the trigger event causes the dam to burst. So what are we talking about over here? What are we talking about over here? A couple of flowers. A couple of flowers. And what happens over a couple of flowers? World, well, I guess it was World War I back then, right? Right, right, World War, right? Fireworks. F- f- what? Why? Why are flowers triggering this? Because, you know, it's not the flowers. It's not the flowers. What is it? It's the deep and dormant pain that resides, by the way, in the hearts of both of these women. See, it's not just Leah. It's not just Leah. Rachel has pain also. Because Rachel wonders, you think Rachel doesn't wonder herself? So like, what is my role in this family? It's very nice. You see, it's incredible, right? Leah, Rachel has what Leah wants, and Leah has what Rachel wants, right? So Rachel has all of the love, none of the children. And Rachel's wondering, why does my sister have all of the children? Leah has all of the children, she feels none of the love, and she wonders, why does Rachel have all of the love? And the incredible part was, they never spoke about this, they never dealt with this, so how does it come out in this, poor Ruvain, Ruvain's like, oh my God, I shouldn't have brought home the flowers, I shouldn't have brought them, right? I should have just left it, I should have stayed playing in the field, I should have left it alone. One little couple of flowers, a powder keg, this entire volcano of emotion erupts. Baruch Hashem Yaakov Avinu wasn't home, right? That was a big thing. And that's actually an important part of the story that he was not there. Because if he was there, this crucially important exchange probably would have never happened. But I want to show you how the story ends. And then we're kind of going to bring it all together. So what happens in number thir- So what happens in number, th- number, number 12? So remember again, after this whole blow up, after the whole blow up, so remember again, how does the blow up end? So the blow up ends ultimately again with Rachel saying, Rachel saying to Leah, Yaakov will be with you tonight. Yaakov will be with you tonight. So if you look at number 12, Yaakov Yaakov Avinu comes back from the field that evening. So Leah comes out and greets him. I don't know, like, I, I, we, I usually skip these things, right, growing up in school. Like, it, it doesn't, it's such a strange pasuk, such a strange pasuk. Yaakov, you're coming with me tonight because essentially I bought you for dudaim. I bartered, I bartered, right? I bartered that, that you're going you're gonna to stay with me, you're going to stay with me for flowers. Vayishka v'imabalailo. So Yaakov, you know, was with Leah that night. Vayishma elokim eleah, k'lishparuch or Leah. Vatar vateled Yaakov ben Chamishi. Leah becomes pregnant that night. So the Netziv says something absolutely amazing. So I just want to point out this, this Leah going out to greet Yaakov and saying, you're coming home with me, is so out of the norm of like biblical modesty. It's so, it's so out of the norm. So the Netziv says, what's this? And he says, Afagav. So then it says, I don't know, this is not generally like how the Avos and the Moos would have conducted themselves. Listen to this. So look within it says, I'm going to piece this all together, and it's an incredible tapestry of events. Leah goes out to greet Yaakov, right? Why? Because remember again, Remember again. So what's, what's going to occur? What's going to occur? If Leah and Rachel made, made an agreement. We'll discuss agreement. What was the agreement? What was the agreement? Right? Rachel's going to get? 
flowers. Leah is going to get Yaakov. Yaakov. So again, how could it have been left? Now, apparently, according to Psukim, that was the night that Yaakovin was going to spend with Rachel. So what would have happened? He would have gone to Rachel's tent. Rachel would have said, yeah, no, no, you're not staying here. You're staying, you're staying with Leah. And Yaakov is going to be like, what happened? Or what's going on? And Rachel's going to have to explain it. And it's going to be embarrassing. So to save her sister from embarrassment, Leah goes out and speaks to her husband in a very forward fashion. Why? In order to save her sister from embarrassment. So watch what's happened over here. Something dramatic has occurred. If we trace this all the way. Leah names Yehuda and she thinks she's flipped the personalistic switch. I've gone from being a woman who could only be preoccupied, yearning and pining for the love and attention of her husband to becoming a woman who is able to accept her reality for what it is and to be thankful for the beautiful life that I have even though things are broken and really important things are in a state of disrepair. But I can't do anything about it. I accept it, ready to move on. So right, you saw Leah that day, you asked her, Leah, how are you doing? And Leah would have said, Leah would have said, fantastic, never better. Hapam Oldes Hashem, I'm living the Yehuda life, right? Everything is great. Everything is great. But then what happens? What happens? See, it wasn't great. It wasn't great. Why wasn't it great? Because Leah is walking around with this incredible animosity towards her sister. Leah is walking around with this incredible feeling of betrayal towards Rachel. Because deep down she feels Rachel, Rachel, at the end of the day, if you really cared about me, why did you marry him after I was already married? What did you think was going to happen? And here's the incredible part. Rachel, who is beloved, right? Who's the apple of Yaakov's eye, the center of his world. But yet, Rachel's also walking around with incredible animosity towards her sister Leah. Why? Because here's amazing. You see, in Rachel's eyes, Leah is the dominant wife. Why is Leah the dominant wife? Why is she the dominant wife? Because she's having sons. Because she's having sons. And Rachel's, how dare you? You are never even supposed to be here. The only reason you're here is because I had Rachmanes on you and didn't want you to be embarrassed. Bless you. So Rachel's upset at Leah. Bless you. Leah's upset at Rachel. And they've been holding on to this now for years. The Dudaim moment is the volcanic eruption. Everything comes out. The stuff that they've been feeling for years, the stuff that they've been walking on eggshells, and they let each other have it. What's the beautiful part after this? What happens? What's the, resu- what, what, what's, what's the conclusion? Is resolution. You see, after this exchange... Rachel truly understands the pain of her sister, Leah. And Leah understands the pain of Rachel. So what does Leah say to Rachel? So what does Rachel say to Leah? Yaakov will be with you tonight. I understand you feel like a second class citizen. I understand that at the end of the day, you don't feel loved. And I know that one night is not going to make you change everything. But at least you see, you see Leah, you see Rachel speaking, you see that I care about how you feel. I care, I I understand how you feel. And I can't change the marital dynamic any more than you can, but I can empathize with you. I can feel with you and try, try to do my part in making you feel a bit more love. Lachain, Yishkav Ita'alayla, he'll be with you tonight. Leah realizes what her sister gave up in order to save her from embarrassment, right? Rachel gave up her husband to save Leah from embarrassment. Leah says, Rachel, I appreciate what you did for me. And I appreciate the sacrifice. And now, I'm going to save you from embarrassment. So what does she do? She doesn't let Yaakov come back to Rachel's tent and then say, now you're not here, and a whole explanation. She goes out to proactively greet him in the field, speak in what was even biblically a very immodest fashion in order to save her sister from embarrassment. So something incredible happens, which is after the volcanic eruption of emotion, there is reconciliation and there is resolution. Does Leah ever become the beloved wife she had hoped and pined for? No. 
But now, now after the sisters have it out, now Leah is able to accept who she is. Does Rachel in her own eyes ever become the primary center stage beloved wife that she thought she, wa- that she, that she wanted to be? No. Right? She has two sons. And remember, again, I want to point out, even if you think about it in the Shvatim, the dominant Shvatim do not come from Rachel. The dominant Shvatim come from Leah. Yehuda, monarchy, comes from Leah. Levi, Kahuna, comes from Leah. All leadership, all leadership comes from Leah. Again, you have Yosef and Binyamin, right? Or Menashe and Ephraim and Binyamin. So again, Rachel becomes three. But at the end of the day, Rachel's children are not as prominent as Leah's children. It's incredible how this, how this evolves. But what's the message of the story? Right? So again, understand. First of all, it's great. Like, what, what a story. Right? What a story. Little Dudaim could really bring out a lot of people. What is the Torah trying to teach us? And I think the Torah is trying to teach us something incredibly important. Lesson number one, which is lesson of Yehuda. That sometimes in life we, 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 we find things, like we said before, I encounter things that are broken. And broken things fall into one of two categories. Things you can fix and things you can't. If something is broken, you can fix it, get to work. Get to work and fix it. But if something is broken and you can't fix it or you can't fix it for now, accept it and pivot. Don't spend your life lamenting that which is broken. If you can't fix it right now, if you can't fix it right now, at the end of the day, move yourself forward. Sometimes, see, we don't like to say it, but sometimes you have to accept certain compromised realities in life. That's the way life is. Not everything is perfect. Not everything lines up. Not everything goes the way you want it to go. You know, the greatest disservice, the greatest disservice that sometimes we do to ourselves, or maybe sometimes as parents do this to our children, is like, we paint a picture that what's the ideal life? What's the ideal life? Everything goes according to plan. I would ask you, if you know one person in this world who has a life where everything goes according to plan, and if you think you do, I'll bet you all the money I have, which is not that much, but I'll bet you all the money that I have, that you just don't know that person's backstory, right? Because no one has a life where everything goes according to plan. That's the way it goes. That's the way it goes, right? Difficulty, challenge, imperfection, broken kite. These, this is part of the fabric of the human condition. The choice I have is how am I going to deal with it? I could be a Leah Imenu with Hoda and say, I, I can't fix this now. So I accept and I pivot. What do I pivot to? Things that are going well. Things that are going great. Things that are working out. And let me not lose out of all the bracha in my life because of the things that are not working as well. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two is you have to deal with your life issues. So often, so often we go through life and the truth is what we love to do more than anything is just sweep it under the rug. Just sweep it under the rug, right? I'm just, it's almost as if, we, we know it's not true, but we walk around life saying, you know what? As long as I don't pay attention to the problem, it's not really there. It's not really there. It could work. That, by the way, that could work episodically. In other words, sometimes in life, just for one's own mental health, it's good to take a break from your problems. You can do it. It's an incredible thing. I'm going to shut off my problem for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, two hours. You, know, you could do that. Right? For the next two hours, I'm not thinking about my problems. I'm just going to live life. Fantastic. Cathartic. Beautiful. Rehabilitative. But it works for two hours. It works for two hours. Your problems don't go away just because you don't deal with them. We so often lack the courage to tackle the things that are broken, to tackle the things that are in a state of disrepair because we're so overwhelmed and so scared by them that we just kind of push it by the side. But what happens when you push your problems to the side? What happens? What happens? What happens? Rachel and Leah happens. Right? That's what, by the way, that's the story over here. The story is, this is not Panam Chadashos Balakan. This is not new problems. It's the same problem simmering for years. But Rachel never went over to Leah. Leah never went over to Rachel and said, Rachel, could we talk? Could we talk? I'm really upset. I'm really upset. And I want, I want, to, I want to be honest and I want to talk to you about this in a controlled, in a controlled way. But they never talk. They never deal, for whatever the reason, I don't know. Who knows what the dynamics were? Who knows what the situation was? But how often in life do we do this? We do this in our life relationships, but it's not just with others. We do it with ourselves. I know that there are things broken inside of me. I know that there are things in a state of disrepair. 
but I make a conscious decision to ignore it. I don't want to deal with it. That's fine, but no one day, it's going to, you know, there's a, there's a great mushal that I like to use. Someone once told me this mushal. They're like, life is like a cup of coffee, not, not a box of chocolates, right? Like, like, life is like a cup of coffee. If you ever see with coffee, so coffee is something very interesting. Coffee, like many liquids, has surface tension. So if you notice, by the way, if you fill up a cup of coffee, you could actually technically fill up coffee above the lip of the cup. You could try it, right? You, 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 and you could see, like, it's, it's very nuanced, but you can actually extend it a little bit, right? Because the surface tension holds the liquid together. But there's something amazing. If you go ahead and you put that cup of coffee, you fill it up, what happens if you introduce one more drop? One more drop? The whole thing goes pouring over the side. I've often found that that cup of coffee is a wonderful metaphor for the self. In other words, we have our cup and it gets filled with a lot of stuff. Every once in a while, you have to make sure that if there's stuff that needs to be dealt with, you got to empty it out. Because if the cup keeps filling up, filling up, filling up, filling up, filling up, your whole cup could hold a lot. But there is going to be that drop that sends you over the edge. There's that thing. See, in this case, it was the dudon. It was just, it was the flowers. It's not, it's not that there's anything special about flowers. It's not that flowers were a point of contention between the sisters. It's that Rochel asked for something from Leah. And Leah felt, Rachel, you've already taken everything from me. What else is there to take? And Rachel says, so funny you should say that. Because I feel you've taken everything from me. And so they're walking around with this pain for all of these years. Never been dealt with. Deal with your problems. We all have them. We all have them. So whether it's a relationship in life that I know is just not so great. Now again, sometimes those relationships fall into the categories of things I cannot fix. But sometimes they fall into the category of things that I can tackle. If you can tackle it, find the courage to deal with your problems because ignoring them is not going to allow it to go away. If there's something inside of me that I know, I know it's not right. I know it's not good. I know it needs to be dealt with. Know this. The day is going to come when you're going to have to deal with it. So you could either deal with it as a result of your cup overflowing. I don't mean cup overflowing in a good way. Like cup overflowing and everything is falling apart. Or I could deal with it in a proactive fashion now while it's still in a controlled situation. These are the two lessons that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is trying to impart to us, impart to us, impart, impart to us from Rachel and Leah. Again, lesson number one, learn to distinguish between what you could fix and what you can't. And find the courage to accept the things you can't. And when you do that, you'll be able to see all the greater good. Lesson number two, if there are problems, there are challenges. In your relationship with others or in your relationship with yourself, deal with it before it becomes an emotional volcano. Now the story does have a beautiful ending. Because the ending of the story is the sisters understand each other. I don't know. Did they become close? Uh, were, were they ever close? Uh, who knows? You know, again, the Torah is not a storybook. So we, we don't know the relationship between Rachel and Leah before they were married, when they were married. But here's what we do know, is that they emerge from this story with a greater understanding of one another. And when within a family, the different members have greater understanding of one another, the family is stronger. And in the case of this story, the genesis, the beginnings of Klal Yisrael, the foundation of Klal Yisrael, become stronger as well. We should be Zilchemir Sashem to have the same kind of courage of Rachel and Leah to internalize these lessons and Amir Sashem lead better, bolder, and braver lives. We'll stop over here for tonight. Next week, Amir Sashem, we'll continue with Sefer Tehillim.